Well, good evening. And uh, before we get started, we want to encourage you as well, those that are available, to come out and pray for Jennifer Brooks. She'll be having her, her uh, um, surgery on that Tuesday. So this is this next Wednesday is the last Wednesday we'll have to get together to, uh, as an assembly to pray for her. And I know in the past, uh, many have made it out in, in great attempts to come out and pray for Allison Kamstra and her brain surgery and everything else. And we saw the effects of the prayer and the Lord answers prayers, as well as uh, uh, Max and his uh, surgery he had on his heart. And at Yosemite, the saints went to, together and prayed, and we saw how the Lord really blessed him and, and the surgery and his recovery and everything else. So now we're, this is the time for us to come together and, and to pray for Jennifer and John and, and for the surgeons and everything else. So I encourage you to come out this next Wednesday to uh, pray. I know sometimes it's hard with work and everything else. And a lot of times on Wednesdays I work. And especially nowadays with crime and everything else, I can't get off on work to save my life. So it's, it's, it's difficult. And um, I just had a big, I can't get sidetracked on it, but a big drug bust last Thursday. Uh, went into a house. We got over 200 pounds of marijuana they're using for sales, over $100,000 in cash, five guns, and um, just they're running out of this apartment. And um, they even have edible gummy bear candies with THC and everything else. It's out of control. And I got one assault rifle, another shotgun and handguns. And so it's just crazy right now. And this is what California's asked for. So they're getting what they asked for. And it's unfortunate. This is messing up a lot of people's lives. All right, let's look to the scriptures now and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. And I've enjoyed this study. This is one of my favorite epistles, this in Romans and other ones. And uh, many years ago when I went to Emmaus Bible College, I took, a Galatians, I took Galatians with Ken Daughters. And um, when I took the class, I, I really didn't know much about Galatians. I, I didn't. And uh, I knew the book of Ephesians, I knew Philippians, you know, more of the more popular books. And as Bob mentioned this morning, this is sometimes a neglected book, a book passed over. But man, it's rich. And probably one of the books that transformed my lives at Emmaus and gave me a, a, a true uh, perspective and understanding of grace and how to live under grace and how to appreciate the grace of God. And I remember my grandpa in his older years I remember him saying to me, uh, I'm just enjoying the grace of God. And I go, oh, that's great, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, uh, justification by grace and so forth. But to live under that grace, and we're going to see how the Apostle Paul in this chapter brings that, that actual subject up, that he is no longer under this grace, and he's enjoying it. And he's actually going to say, man, like you Gentiles, you've never been under the law. So I become like you. I'm no longer under the law. And this is great. This is tremendous to bask in the grace of God where there's liberty, where there's forgiveness, where everything uh, abounds and um, you see growth and so forth. Where, I don't know if we'll have time, but we'll look into it, where in 2 Corinthians 3, he actually addresses that the letter kills, the law kills, it brings forth death and so forth. Um, so it's an encouragement to really, and it's been great, every uh, person that's come up here and, and Presented the book of Galatians has just uh, brought it home with understanding of the grace of God, of, of the forgiveness of sins, of these two systems of law and grace. 
and to really understand that there is a system of law and there's a system of grace, and under the law brings condemnation. We don't commingle these. We never take them in. And this is what's happening in, in Galatia with these Judaizers. They're trying to commingle this system and come up with this form of a works-based sanctification. And we see it today. You know, a lot of times we think, okay, we don't have the Judaizers. We don't have the Mosaic Law. We don't have the issues that they're having it with, uh, that they're dealing with back in then, because we've separated ourselves so far from Judaism that unless we get some uh, Jew that might come in, some uh, that's accepted the Lord and wants to bring this back in, maybe we'll experience it. But a lot of times, and sometimes in this letter, he uses, refers to more law as not only the Mosaic law, but any system in which you're going to put about with rituals, with ceremonies, with keeping of your own laws, and wish to bring about justification or sanctification. Baptismal regeneration. Does that not fit right into this book of Galatians where people say you must be baptized in order to be saved? It's going back, doing a works based. You have to do something to be saved. We'll have people that are prince re preach repentance for salvation. And their form of repentance is what? you got to give up your drugs. you got to give up your alcohol. you got to give up that old way of life and come to Jesus. And, and if you don't give it up and come to him, you can't be saved. So you're asking someone in their old nature, in the flesh, to deny these things and come to Christ and get saved. They're adding a works-based uh, salvation that you got to do this in order to be saved. And then we know the scriptures doesn't teach that. You come to Christ you confess your sins. True repentance is that mind in which you change your opinion towards the, the way of salvation. You change your opinion toward yourself, that you are a sinner, that you're separated from a holy, righteous God, and that the only way of salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you repent and you turn towards God. And he'll actually give the example but actually, you turn from idols unto the living God. You've trusted in this other system. Now you're repenting, you're turning towards God, and you're admitting that you're a sinner. There's no way of salvation on your own. But we like to add in these works that I can see someone do something. And if I can see you do something, then I can place you on this standard. And once I place you on this standard, now I can examine you, and I can judge you, and see where you fall into that category. We do it in the church. We do it everywhere we go with sanctification, with bringing up. And, and maybe you remember in the past of where certain uh, churches or so forth will say, you're not allowed to have a TV in your house. If you can just cut that TV out of the house, then you'll be sanctified. Hmm. Or maybe when the Internet came around, Christians shouldn't have the Internet in their house. And I, I know in some rings, they'll come into a house, and, and here comes the inspector looking around. It's a mighty big TV you got there. <laughs> Is that your idol? <laughs> True. I, I love big TVs. Let me tell you, they're amazing. I don't go to the store anymore because when you go to the store, you see how crisp and clear they are with high def, and then you go home and you just get dissatisfaction. But but this is what we've done, and we'll continue on. And we can go on to where I've heard stories of of missionaries that, that some you have to deprive yourself you have to do something in order to gain this sanctification we have Wesleyan perfectionism the Methodists the Methodists were falling after John Wesley Charles Wesley and they came up with a method that if you do a B and C you will accomplish 
uh, complete sanctification. This is a works-based uh, sanctification process in which we can apply the book of Galatians to it. There's so many different more examples we can get into of over the years you've probably had people come and tell you certain things. Where we add these rules, we add these regulations that are foreign to the scriptures. But if I can set a standard for you, I can see where you stand and then I can examine you externally and say, yeah, you're godly and you're not. I see the scriptures are foreign to this. Because that's the Old Testament way. The Old Testament way is that you march to the beat of the same drum and everyone externally conforms to it and they go and we can say, yeah, that guy's a righteous guy. Yeah, that guy's not. All of a sudden you come to the new covenant and what is the new covenant? It's no longer the external conformity, but it's the internal change going throughout where God says, I'm going to write my law in your hearts. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put it in your mind. I'm going to place my spirit within you to draw out that new nature in which I've given to you. We're going to get into this in chapter 5 of where the fruit of the spirit, where the spirit's responsibility is to go and work within your life and take that new nature and draw out those attributes of God that he's placed within you so that we love like, love, like God loves. We don't have time to get into it, but if you look at grace versus law, a, 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 an example of actually grace brings forth more righteousness than the law ever did. You see, the law would say, how much should you tithe? 10%, right? So if I throw my 10% in the basket, I'm good. I'm good in the standing of God. I'm good with everybody else. I go on and live my life. I'm fulfilling this requirement. When you come to the New Testament, how much are you supposed to give? You're all. We give our bodies as a living sacrifice. We give everything we have out of our appreciation and our love for Christ for what he's done on the cross. It's now this love-based relationship where I serve the living God and he can have my all. That's my reasonable service, Paul would say in Romans chapter 12. And this is the understanding of grace is that you are under this system of where you have absolute forgiveness, absolute freedom, absolute um, joy that you can serve the Lord wholeheartedly. You should preach your gospel of Christian living and salvation so free that you should get the response that Paul would get. Oh, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul would say, God forbid. That's not the purpose. If you're going to continue in sin, you're really not truly a believer in Christ. You truly don't understand the grace of God. And see, the grace of God brings forth within us and this system in which we are under produces conformity to the image of Christ. And if we were to look at it and compare it like this, you would say the old covenant, you plaster on the wall, the Ten Commandments, right? Moses. This talks about it in John chapter 1. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. We place Jesus Christ over here under the new covenant. Author of Hebrews would say, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our eyes are focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're focused on him and that love relationship, we follow him wholeheartedly. And all these desires of the flesh of the world just fade away. It's no longer do not do this. It's that I don't want to do this. You see, in the new covenant, you have no desire to go and engage in the world because I don't want to bring shame to my father, my heavenly father. I don't want to bring shame to Jesus' name. I love him. And when you get someone's heart that follows after the Lord, it's so much greater than you get someone that follows after legality, after you shall do this or there's a punishment that's involved. 
The grace of God is tremendous, and we should be basking in the grace of God. And the grace of God should be conforming us to the image of Christ, changing our lives day in and day out. And some of the criticism that comes of the grace of God is they'll sit there and say, well, look at the Muslims, how devout they are and their legality of system. Look at the Christians, how lazy they are under grace. Look at the Christians, how they don't want to go out and do anything. They don't want to read their Bible. The Muslims are getting up, and, and whoever other religion you want to compare it to, we're getting up and we're doing our prayers three times a day. We're facing this. We're doing this. We're doing this external conformity. And then they say, oh, that's righteous. And I've worked for a prince from Saudi Arabia, and it's all external. The immorality within that, that organization is, is tremendous. But I'm not here to compare that, but I'm saying is that sometimes as Christians, we bring shame to the grace of God because of our slothfulness within it. We should be basking in it. We should be loving it. We should be living it. We should be testimonies for Christ that as you see in the, the book of Acts and as they're, they're studying on Wednesday nights, we're going through there, how these men are transformed by the resurrected Christ and they just go after it. Nobody's lacking anything. They're sharing everything. They're in unity. They're going forth praying for one another, giving to one another. And there's no legality. There's no... Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. It's, oh, my love for Christ is so great. I give my all. And they turn the world upside down is what they do. So let's read verses uh, 12 through the uh, end of the chapter to, to pick up context here. Verse 12 says, Brother, and I urge you to become like me, for I become, became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I ha have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by the free woman. But he who was, was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in the bondage with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as, we, as he who was born according to the flesh, when persecuting him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not have an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. 
If you were to break down, and, and Bob covered part of it uh, this morning, but, um, but up until verse uh, 18, or I'll go on to 20, he's going to appeal to the relationship in which they have with one another. And then from there on out to the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 31, he's going to now bring a practical example of the difference between law and grace. And what he's going to use, he's going to use something that the Judaizers would use, and that is the Old Testament, because they, they love the Old Testament. And he would use no wonder but the patriarch, one of the forefathers, that is revered, that's an icon, and that is Abraham, in which the covenants come forth. And Apostle Paul is going to meet up, and he's going to give them an example of the difference between the two covenants by utilizing one of their own people, and that is Abraham, and to whom the blessings are going to flow. And something they would identify and they would be able to see because up until this point uh, in time, there has not been nothing but headaches through the line of Ishmael. Just fighting and war and everything else between Isaac and Ishmael. And these two lines, I remember one Wednesday night, Bob had mentioned, he goes, you know, that one of the ites, they're fighting. These are their cousins. These are relatives. But they hate each other and they go at it. And to this day, there's still a fight over Israel over Jerusalem with the Muslims who, who are, are, would be the descendants of Ishmael in that line. And they're still fighting that, hey, the, the, the proper uh, seed that came through the, the, the line is through Ishmael, not through Isaac. He was a firstborn. So we have the rights to the land, not you uh, Jews. They're going to experience that, and Paul's going to bring this stuff up and, and, and show how the, the flesh does not bring about the promises of God. So picking it up back in uh, verse 12, he's going to start off by saying, Brother, and I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Look at the appeal that he makes in, in saying, Brethren. And we know from this particular epistle, you read the other epistles, and he'll say, no matter what, what a, a church he's writing to, he will find something good, and I praise you for this, or I praise you for that. And he brings out something that there's some little glitch of goodness within him. The Galatians, there's none. He doesn't have any praises for him because he takes this so serious that there's an attack of the gospel and that they have been perverted, that they have taken this gospel and added works to it, that he is not even going to give them any praise but start right in on them with the rebuke, with the correction. And this should be important for us to learn from this book is that when legalism comes in, when people stand up and try to teach something that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of sanctification by, by grace or justification by grace, we should stop them immediately and not let it even come in and creep in for one second. Back in the, the book of Galatians, Paul would say um, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, in whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He stopped it immediately. He doesn't allow it go because what you're going to find out when you go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse A, or uh, A, look at chapter 5, verse 9. He refers to this legalism that's going to carry throughout the church. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That this legalism, this corruption of the gospel is like adding a little bit of leaven to the, the dough of bread and how it makes it rise. And before you know it, it takes over and infiltrates. And see, Paul understands that you've got to stop it right now. You can't let legalism continue in, in, in an assembly. 
of God's people. It will destroy lives. We had it go on in Cedar Rapids, uh, Iowa, when we went there for a time. There was legalism going on and, and everything else, and we just watched Christians leave the assembly left and right. It brought forth death. It, 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 it stifles the Christian's growth. But this is what they want to do, is they want to come in and control and put these regulations upon you and, and stop it and uh, control you. But Paul is saying, don't, don't tolerate it. Stop it right now. And he's going to appeal to these guys on the basis of brother and is saying, this is, we're a spiritual family. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's going to go on. He'll talk about how he led him to the Lord. But he's recognize, recognizing this spiritual bond that out of this letter now of rebuke, there's going to come a little bit of this love in which he just loves these believers. And he wants to see him go on in the Lord. And this actual strong rebuke that's coming towards him is a strong rebuke to correct them because they perverted and they're going down the wrong path and you got to stop it right now. Paul says, I urge you to become like me for I became like you. And what he's referring to there, I believe, is that the mere fact is that he was under this law and he's now under grace, no, no longer under the law, and he's enjoying this, this grace, that he's become like them in the sense that they were never under the law. They don't understand the regulations, the, the rituals, the ceremonies. The, the, these guys sit around, and we have a, a large Jewish community within the North Hollywood and so forth. But I was talking to one of the, the, the Jewish uh, co-workers. And he goes, these guys will sit around and just wrangle on what's acceptable and not acceptable on the Sabbath. What can we do? Or what can we eat? And he goes, and I'm talking, and he goes, yeah, they just, these guys will sit on this, debate it and debate it, and then they add rules upon rules upon regulations upon this, trying to safeguard from violating uh, the Holy Commandments, the Ten Commandments. Uh, one thing to their credit is, and I asked him, I said, can you, can you say the name, I wanted to hear him say it in Hebrew, uh, Jehovah, you know, how he'd pronounce it. I can't. Why? Because you shall not use his name in vain. It has to be a context in which you use it and, and go on and so forth. They're so regulated by what they can do, and, and it does show a respect for the Lord in that sense, but that's how they are, in that we would come and cry out, Abba, Father, and that relationship has changed from this legality that the, the Jews couldn't call him Father. They would never refer to him as Father. Here we come, and we pray to the Father, to the Heavenly Father. We address him. We talk to him. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And, um, but they're so concerned with trying to keep from violating that law that they are just filled with multiple commandments and so forth. So Paul, zealous for the law, and we've already heard, is now experiencing that freedom in Christ of not keeping all these commandments and everything else. And one more thing to add on top of it. None of us are exempt from falling into legalism. None of us are exempt or having in our past probably added some types of works of, of righteousness that we've tried to safeguard ourselves against to think that we're really pleasing God now. Let me tell you this. If the apostle Peter can fall into it, so can we. So no one's safeguard. There's no one exempt here that, 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 is, that we could say, oh, they won't fall into some sort of legalism or anything else. We have to constantly examine the scriptures and be true to the word of God and not add to our sanctification. 
So he says, for I became like you. He says, you have not injured me at all. And it's not quite sure what he means by this, but I believe it's possibly some of the commentaries think that <clears throat> their attack of Paul and their attack of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not really attack on him. It's ultimately attack on God. And, you know, we're in the church today, and, and you'll get blasted by other brethren. And some of the, your worst criticism, your worst uh, um, persecution, and Joe Reese shared this with us, has come from within, has come from other brothers and sisters. But you know what, ultimately, what Paul's doing here is he's deflecting it, and he's a minister. He's just a messenger, and he loves them. But ultimately, you're not just attacking him. You're attacking God's system. You're attacking God's word. You're attacking God's truth. So he defers it off, and he says, hey, you haven't injured me at all. I understand what the, true, the big picture is, and that's your, your wrestling with God. You know because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Now, it's unsure what this infirmity is, but some think maybe he had malaria when he came upon him and he was sick. And they had to divert to this particular area first. Some might think because of verse 15, he says that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, that maybe this is his eye problem and that he is suffering experience and pain and everything else of his trial, so forth. I'm not, we're not 100% sure, but whatever it is, he came to these Galatian, uh, these Galatians um, people and he was dealing with infirmity. He was dealing with a trial. He was dealing with some sort of illness. And they still took him in in spite of what he was going through. They still took him in. They didn't let that hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only received him, but received him as an angel of God or even Jesus Christ. That when he came to them, they listened to what he had to say. And they rejoiced. And they were so emphatic of this gospel that he brought to them. That they accepted him in and received him. So he's saying in verse 15, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Their love for Paul, and he's, he, he's appealing to that relationship he had to him, that it's not only Paul that loves them, but that they loved Paul when he was there. They received Paul. They, 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 they ministered to Paul. They treated his infirmities. And they were so concerned about him that these saints there would actually be willing to pluck out their own eyes and say, here, Apostle Paul, have my eyes. That's how much I'm indebted to you for bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. That's how much appreciation I have for you. But there was a unique relationship in which Paul had, and now he's not only given them the truth of, of the doctrine of, of grace and what he's gone through and defended his apostolic authority and is bringing it about, but he's also appealing, appealing on a, a, a relational level but look, we're close friends. You love me, I love you. And see, that's how the church should be. That's how Christians should be, is that you have a true, genuine love for one another, that whatever you need, I'm willing to give it, whether it's uh, pluck my eyes out and give it to you. Or we have Jennifer Brooks, who's going through uh, brain surgery. Who wants to take her place? If we could take her place and stop that suffering, how many of us would do it? That's how sincere we should be for love for one another and that we want to get in their place and we can't. So the next best thing we can do is to pray 
and to pray hard and to continue to pray and beseech the Lord on behalf of individuals that are suffering. And that's what they did. It would be similar to the past in which we had, I mentioned Allison and Max and how the saints came together and prayed. And if there's anything I could have plucked out my heart and given it to Max and taken that surgery for him, I would have done it. I know all of you would have done it. Your heart's broken. It's being torn apart. And that's how they felt for the Apostle Paul that they wanted to take his place. Fix the problem. It's a unique relationship. So then verse 16, he says this. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? How has our relationship changed? How is it that you're willing to pluck out your eyes back when I was with you, and now I'm the enemy? Now, for some reason, I'm not being received by you. What's the problem here? What is the issue? What has become between me and you in our relationship in which I led you to the Lord Jesus Christ? I preached the gospel unto you. What has changed? I'm only telling you the truth. I'm only bringing about what the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught me. I delivered it to you, and I'm continuing to deliver it to you. And I don't care who it is that perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll correct them. I'll stand up to the apostle Peter, this this icon in the church. He was wrong in what he did. So I stood up uh, to his face and called him out on it. The hypocrisy that was going on. We get carried away with the hypocrisy. It needs to be stopped. So what's come between you and me? It's these false teachers that have stepped in. It's these zealots. It's these Judaizers. It's these ones that pervert the gospel. It's these ones that want to gather a following. It's these ones that, that will sneak in after the Apostle Paul has left, and they know where he's planted these churches, and then they step foot into this church, and they say, you know what? There's a little bit more. The Apostle Paul is not telling you everything. But you know you need to be circumcised. Circumcision, I mean, come on. It's according to the law. Let's, you know, eighth day, they're supposed to be circumcised. These people sit in the corners and whisper in silence to individuals. They don't come out with their doctrine and just blast it out so everybody knows it. They hide it. And they try to gather a following. And once they get one listener, and they get another listener, and they get another one, and pretty soon they take control. And these people actually will rise up and be their spokespersons. And they can sit back and watch the chaos go around. They go after the weaker sheep. You know, uh, uh, watching these shows in on, uh, Africa where the lions go after the wildebeest and so forth, they don't go after the, the, the main head honcho, the, the big guy. They get that straggler that's falling behind. They go after the sick, the lame, the weak, whoever they can get. It's no different for false teachers. It's no different in the church that we try to, they try to convince people to come over to their side. And they do it in silence. And they're hidden amongst us. And before you know it, this little bit of leaven festers up within the assembly of God's people. And people are being perverted. People are, are, are straying away. And this is what happened in Galatia. That before Paul knew it, all of a sudden, this is riddled through all these believers. And he's hearing stuff. He's like, i got to stop this. Have I labored in vain? Have you forgotten so quickly 
what I've taught you? It's because of these legalizers that have stepped in. Verse 17 says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. You see, they're going after him, and they're courting them, and they're doing it zealously. They'll take you out to eat. They'll do whatever. They'll wine and dine you. They'll tickle your ears. They'll tell you what you want to hear. They'll take the truth and just twist it just a little bit so that you bite into it and you follow them. Now, we have several carpenters here, Dave, Bob, that built a lot of stuff. And one of the worst things I can imagine as Dave or Bob, you're building something and you build a cabinet and there's this little gap there. Your measurement's just quarter inch off, half inch off. That's all it is. No big deal. Stick it in the home. You know, stick that cabinet up there. Homeowner's not going to notice that gap. And then they walk through and they, what do they see? The gap. You see, and this is the same thing false teachers do. It's just that little bit off. It's just that little perversion. It's just that little twist of adding to the gospel, of taking away from the gospel. Satan's done this from the Garden of Eden. You see, his trickery, we shouldn't be surprised by it. He did it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He didn't take the word of God and, and, and totally change it. I think it was John Nelson Darby that said, Satan's no more satanic than when he's carrying the Bible. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about that these ministers of Satan are going to transform themselves as angels of light. They're going to reflect what a, a Christian should be like, and they're going to take this scripture and then twist it up and add a little something to it. And before you know it, they lead people astray that are out following them. And that's what these guys are doing. And they've courted them. And they've cut the Apostle Paul out from them. He says they want to exclude you in the sense that they want to exclude them from having any communication with Paul. They, they, they badmouth them. They, they, they've criticized his apostleship. They've criticized his gospel. They've criticized him to death. So that now, when it comes time, that he's hoping, the, the, the zealots here are hoping that they don't talk to the Apostle Paul because this is what the Apostle Paul is going to tell them when they run into him. So they want to separate them out. And they're zealous for them because they want them to follow them. The false teachers, the, the, the zealots, the, the um, Judaizers want these people to look to them as the sole authority of the scriptures and to get all of their answers from them and to stop listening to the Paul and these other disciples and so forth. Don't listen to them, only listen to us. They tell you something, come back and tell, and tell me and I'll correct you, I'll, I'll straighten you out. It says, good to be zealous, but for a good thing. And not only when I'm present with you. And then what he's possibly referring to there is he's all for people coming in and being zealous for their souls and leading them in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the word of God. He's all for it. He has no problem with, with people coming in and pouring their lives into, in, into their lives. But what his problem is, is when they pervert the gospel, they, they take away the truth and he has an issue with that. And uh, he doesn't want them coming in and going after them. Verse 19 says, My little children for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you. 
And here he's appealing again to that time in which he labored for them. And this labor in birth has to do with a woman in pregnancy that the labor pains hits her and it's time for delivery. This is the, the analogy that Paul's given of when he led them to the Lord. He was in labor for them. And now he's saying, in whom I labor and birth again until Christ is from you. He's going through it all again. He's having sleepless nights. He's having anxiety of, of where are these Christians? What are they doing? He's back in labor because he wants Christ to be formed in them. He wants them to be conformed to the image of Christ and to walk after Christ and his ways. And again, he appeals, my little children, speaking of that parent-child relationship. And he says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. He wants to see them face to face. He wants to have that eye-to-eye -eye communication. He wants to see their facial expression. He wants to see everything about them. I know some of the young people here, this is kind of foreign, but, um, but to sit down and have a conversation with someone across the table, it's kind of unique. You can see facial expressions and everything else, um, and not just text messaging and, and everything else. I had one time, there was one of the young people, they were, I was trying to talk to them. They weren't talking. They were looking on their phones. So I go, okay. I just started texting them. <laughs> I got their attention and we started talking but uh, that, that's a problem with the many young people today is that that face-to-face -face communication and interaction is being lost and being able to communicate but Paul wants that so he can change his tone if they're if they're heeding his message if they're not he can up to any but he wants to see uh, them and interact with them face to face but he has his doubts about some of them. He doesn't know if this message is going to get through to them. He doesn't know if they're too far gone. So now he's going to change over to verse 21 to the rest of the chapter. And we're going to try to take this as a whole in the next five minutes or so here and, and look at it. And it's a unique chapter. It's a unique phrase in which he, or section, and an example in which he uses that I would have never gathered from the Old Testament. I would have never picked this up but it's through the Spirit of God, and he shows this example and so forth. And I usually don't have an original thought anyway, so it really doesn't matter. Most of the stuff that is taken up, i got to be taught it by somebody or something. But the Apostle Paul knows the law. He knows the Old Testament, and he utilizes it. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. And he's appealing to those who are saying, no, I'm keeping this law. No, we're, we're adding law to sanctification. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, and the one a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. So let's look at the big picture here. And many of you know the story of Abraham and how God, <coughs> back in Genesis chapter 2, and following along that he gave a, a promise of blessing. It's the Abrahamic covenant in which he says, I'm going to give you this land and you're going to take your family, depart and go. And Abraham says, okay, I'll go. And he says, I'm going to make the, the descendants as the sand of the sea on the seashore, the stars in the heaven, or as the dust of the earth. That's how many descendants you're going to have that are going to come and, and, and populate this world based upon from you. 
and the blessings that flow through the Abrahamic covenant, in which he's already appealed, and Jesse took it up in chapter 3 of this Abrahamic covenant that was the great promise, and it's an unconditional promise, and it's a promise of grace that God is going to do something irregardless of what man does. God promised Abraham that he was going to do it. Because I will do. Mosaic law is conditional. I will do this if you do this. If you heed my voice, I will bless you. You, you reject my, my word, you don't follow my word, curse is going to come upon you. The Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. He says, I will do this. Irregardless of what you do, irregardless of how you act. And we're still awaiting that future uh, covenant that will take place in the fulfillment of the land in the future in, in the millennial kingdom in which he will fulfill what he promised to Abraham and they will in, in inherit that land in its entirety and um, no one else will take it over as well as the Davidic covenant where Christ is going to sit at the, at the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule over the entire world and fulfill that covenant. But until that time we are still experiencing the blessings that are all through Abraham, and this blessing, which is through the Abrahamic covenant, is like I mentioned, it's a covenant of grace. So it's God promised to Abraham. He later on tells Abraham, it's, it's not going to be through anyone else but through Sarah. Years go by. They're advanced in age. Sarah, hey, I'm not going to have a child. This is ridiculous. Let's take this matter in your own hands. Hagar, come here. You're my slave. You're under bondage. You've got to do what I said. Abraham, take my maidservant. We'll have the child through her. And this is the blessing that's going to flow through. And, and man devises his own plan and, and, and brings about uh, the will of God, or they think they can bring about the will of God, the blessings of God, through the works of the flesh. And they go, and Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. All of a sudden, the tension starts. The problems start between... Sarah and, and Hagar, and then the child is born, and God goes, no, this is not the, the promise of God. It doesn't come through the works of the flesh. It's going to come through Sarah. It's coming through her, the free woman, as Paul is going to describe here, the one that is in the love relationship, that is not under bondage. You see, under bondage of, of Hagar is a slave, and this represents, and what Paul's drawing out, of being under the law, that you're under this bondage of the law. And you're not going to bring about the covenant of blessing through the bondage of the law and, and, and fulfill it by the works of the law. But it's going to come through the promise, which is through the free woman, which is Sarah. And now it's interesting, 25, he, he mentions Mount Sinai and where they received the law and it corresponds to Jerusalem where they practiced the law, where the temple was at. And he says, this is the bondage in which you're in. But the freedom... The free woman, the grace of God is flowing through Abraham to Sarah, through Sarah to Isaac, and onward down that line there. That's the children of Israel. That's the line that God has given them. And this is a miraculous birth that is only done and achieved by the Spirit of God because Sarah was past her natural uh, um, age of being able to conceive and have a child. It's of the Spirit of God that he brought about all this. And this is the grace of God, that God is doing this for Abraham through Sarah and onward down. And he says, no, this is not going to come about through the works of, of your plans, 
Sarah and Abraham, but it's coming through the grace of God. And he's going to bring this about, and this is the example that he's, he's given here, that in verse 27 he would say, Rejoice, O barren one. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. You see, to this day, Ishmael persecutes Isaac. And we don't have time to look at it, but it actually says that, and when he talked to Hagar, that not only is this going to take place, but he's going to rise up his hand against every man. And you follow the Muslims and how they've gone throughout the world and risen up their hands against every man and have done war with them. And it's continuing through today, and he's ringing this through. But the promises of God are through Isaac. Still to this day, the unbeliever persecutes the believer. Still the same picture in which he's showing here. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And in that same example where they cast out Hagar and Ishmael and put them away, that there's not going to be a co-inheritance. And what he's talking about here is you can't co-mingle grace and law together. It doesn't work. You're never going to have it. You either have God doing it or man doing it. If man's doing it, man reaps the rewards. Man reaps the punishment under the system of law, under the system of grace. It's all God, I will do. And the new covenant is I will. Unconditional in what he will do. And he will bring about, and he will bring this word about. And when we hit chapter 5 here next week, you're going to see more of where he's going to start to appeal the way of righteousness through the Spirit of God and the fruits of the Spirit and everything else. Having said that, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, Father, we just thank you so much for the Word of God. We thank you for its depths, Father. We thank you for its explanations, that it teaches us to live godly, that it ultimately directs us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we can fixate our eyes upon him. We can set our eyes upon the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Now, he is so much greater than anything else in this world. Now, Father, let us love him wholeheartedly. Let us serve him with a, a, a zealous heart and be zealous for the things of God and be zealous for you, O Lord. And what you love, we want to love. And what you hate, we want to hate. Because for we are children of God and we want to represent our Father, Father. The law can't bring us righteousness. But faith and trust and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ can, and that's what we look towards. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.